picking up on a refrain that John the Baptist had preached before him, Jesus begins his ministry asking those who came to hear him to not just repent, as John had, but also to believe the good news he was proclaiming. He moves through the region, and then he personalizes his calling to two pairs of brothers he sees near the sea, asking them to follow and to fish. To fish, not as they were doing when he found them with nets for actual fish, but to fish for people. And as we see in today's text, Simon, Andrew, James, and John made a very strong start in the disciple era of their lives, immediately following the one who was calling them away. The narrative, as it does throughout Mark's gospel, the narrative moves very fast, but not so fast that we cannot pick up on what they were leaving behind. Their jobs, right in the midst of doing them. Their families, including a father who likely relied heavily on the work of his two sons. What else did they leave behind that day? We can only imagine, but we understand that their immediate response came at a price. Yes, it was a bold start these four men made. That noted, professor and author Mark Allen Powell writes in his textbook, Introducing the New Testament, it is often said that in Mark's version of the gospel story, the only thing the disciples ever do right is leave their nets to follow him in the first place. After that, they disappoint him at every turn. Now at first, this choice made by the author of Mark to emphasize rather than hide the shortcomings of the men who followed Christ seems an odd one. But when we consider the audience to whom he was writing, it becomes clear that there was a good reason for this particular lean to his portrayal of the disciples. The Gospel of Mark was written earlier than the other three Gospels. On this, scholars agree. Even so, it was not recorded right after, and certainly not during, Jesus' years on earth, but instead was written some 40 years after his death and resurrection. By that time, well, let's just say the early church had seen some things had been through some real challenges. There had been persecution, and not all who were still a part of the church had held up particularly well under it. The bravest and the boldest were likely gone, having been martyred for their faith. Those who were left may have denied Christ. They may have betrayed fellow believers to save themselves. Or at the very least, they may simply have become very, very quiet. 
To read the story of Jesus and his followers once it was finally written down, and to see that those followers of Christ weren't the perfect heroes of faith that they had come to be known as, this was encouraging to the first readers of the Gospel of Mark. If these men, who they knew to be brave and courageous because they knew how their stories played out, if these men had started as wobbly and insecure as the Gospel of Mark showed them to be, well, there was hope for them too, these struggling church members. Now, I know that today we're looking at a text from chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, but I want to skip ahead to the end of Mark and look at another thing that the author of the Gospel may have done for his readers. I want you to pick up the Bible in your pew and turn to the 16th chapter of Mark. That's the last chapter of Mark. Mark was early and very short. <laughs> now, when I look at my Bible at home and even in Bible apps that I have on my phone or online, there is something interesting after verse 8 of this last chapter of Mark, and you will probably see the same thing today. I did not check, but something along the lines of the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. Okay, that's interesting. Now, let's look at those first eight verses that may have been the original author's closing words. So we see the women going to the tomb where Jesus had been laid. They find Jesus is gone, and a man in white is there instead, presumably an angel. The angel tells them that Jesus is risen and to go tell the disciples. And then verse 8 says, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Period. Now that is a peculiar way to end a story, is it not? And it's not a particularly uplifting one, actually. If this is where the author ended his narrative, why? Again, let's think of those original readers of this account. Remember the situation they found themselves in decades after Jesus' ascension. They had heard the same call Jesus made to the crowds. Repent. Believe. They had heard the same call Jesus made to those brothers, follow, fish. But they had stumbled. They had struggled. They had not performed up to Jesus's or their own expectations. They were likely just like these women described in verse 8. Trembling, bewildered, afraid and very, very quiet. And reading these words that so oddly ended Mark's gospel, they were also something else. They were keenly aware that they had a decision to make in the midst of all of their strong feelings and fears. Were they going to allow themselves to stay silent 
as this abrupt ending says the women did? Or were they going to continue the story as the women must surely have decided to do? Were they going to be content to be like the disciples they read about in Mark's narrative? Unsure, worried about selfish things, missing the point, in short, disappointing? Or were they going to become like the heroes of faith that they knew the disciples to be? The ending of the Gospel of Mark, if this is truly how the author left it at verse 8, invited the readers, encouraged them to act. Jesus called those who heard him to repent, believe, follow, fish. But hear this. When the brothers left their boats and their families, and we can only imagine what all else, When they left with Jesus, they were not just setting down one set of tasks and taking up new ones. The Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which we always use here and which you heard this morning, it translates Jesus' call in today's text as, Follow me and I will make you fish for people. A better translation, though, is the one that you will see in the New International Version and other versions, which says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. It's a very small difference, but it's an important one. I will make you fish versus I will make you fishers. Discipleship was not just about repenting, believing, following, fishing. Discipleship was about becoming a repenter, believer, follower, fisher. Discipleship was not for those brothers, for those crowds, for those in the early church, nor is it for us today about tasks to tick off. It is about identity, our identity. And if discipleship is a statement about identity and not about tasks, as Vanderbilt Divinity School professor Ted Smith puts it, if discipleship is about identity, then it must involve something other than participation in church programs. Where are you on your discipleship journey? Are you repenting, sometimes over and over again, for the same shortcomings and failings? Or are you a repenter, someone who is truly transformed by that which has convicted you? Are you believing, holding the right thoughts and ideas in your mind? Or are you a believer? Someone whose faith is the fuel and the purpose behind every word and deed. Are you following? Careful to spend at least part of your week in churchy places, doing churchy things. Or are you a follower? Someone who goes out into the world fearlessly and obediently, taking your cues from the one you follow. And are you fishing? 
Inviting your neighbors and friends to come to church with you. You know, especially those neighbors and friends that you know already attend a church. And so when you invite them, you don't have to have any uncomfortable conversations about faith. Or are you a fisher of people? Someone who isn't afraid to enter into relationships with people who aren't like you and then to share your story with them, your whole story of a life in faith and what that means to you. Repenting, believing, following, fishing. These are powerful actions of a disciple, but they are not nearly as powerful as living out the identity we are called to. Repenter, believer, follower, fisher. So where are you? Where are we as a church? And is there any limit to what God can do through us as we take on not just the tasks of disciples, but the identity of disciples? May we decide today to be a part of God's ongoing creative acts carrying the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we go, forever equipped and emboldened by the Holy Spirit for the transformation of the world and the love of our neighbor. Let us pray. Gracious God, we do love a to-do list and a group of tasks to do. And much of our life in faith is about doing the things that we need to do to grow closer to you, to show our love for you and for our neighbor. But we risk compartmentalizing our lives when we see our faith, our discipleship, as a list of things to do instead of who we are in totality. We find our identity in you, and you have given us Jesus' life to show us how it is that you expect us to follow, to believe, to turn away from that which you have convicted us of, that which separates us from you, and yes, how it is that we too can be fishers of people. Fill us up with your spirit. Make us bold and brave. Inhabit every corner of our lives that our entire identity would be informed by our relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.